Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. School of Humans. This show follows the investigation of serial murders and contains material that may be disturbing. Listener discretion advised. Michaela Valentine, heart pounding, waits in the car for her husband, Zach. She stares at her reflection in the mirror. In her blonde wig and heavy makeup, she barely recognizes herself. Inside, Zach carries out two fatal attacks on Natasha Berger and her neighbor, Joy Burnside. The plan was for Michaela to help him, but she couldn't bring herself to go through with it. When the executions are complete, Zach flees from the townhouse and runs toward the waiting car. He jumps in next to his wife. His hands, his face, his clothes, all covered in blood. Zach and Michaela speed away from the scene, bolting across the darkened city. Zach calls to check in with Marinda. The job is done, he tells her. Marinda hears Michaela crying in the background and orders them to get rid of the murder weapons and report back immediately to the flat, where Cecilia is waiting. When they arrive, Zach explains to Cecilia what happened and how Michaela couldn't bring herself to kill Joy. Cecilia was not pleased. LaRue and Marcel are ordered to scrub the car clean of blood. Rhea Grunewald rushes to Natasha's place as soon as she hears the tragic news. She has to see for herself if things had actually gone this far. Rhea watches, slack-jawed, as the bodies of Natasha and Joy are carried out, both covered in white sheets. In the dark of night, no one recognizes Rhea. But the following day, a witness comes forward. I heard screams coming from Joy's home, she said. When I looked outside, I saw a blonde woman running from the house to her car. That woman was Michaela in a blonde wig. But strangely, 
The witness tells the police, with some certainty, that who she saw fleeing the murder scene was Rhea. As if things weren't bad enough, Rhea's life was about to take yet another turn for the worse. She was about to become the primary suspect. From School of Humans and iHeart Podcasts, this is Queen Havoc and her murder cult. I'm your host, Kurt Kubitschek. Episode 3, Eyes of a Killer. In untangling the web of this case, we discover a long list of bad actors. But we also encounter people like Rhea, vilified for their good intentions. Among these well-intentioned individuals is the man we've been calling Luke. His involvement with Cecilia Stein would come at a steep cost. Luke is something of a vigilante. He met Cecilia and Alexis Perdaz in 2012 as the murders were picking up steam. His friend Aria introduced him to the Know Your Enemy pamphlet, which piqued his interest. The book's name was Know Your Enemy. So that convinced a lot of people. How do you protect yourself if you don't know how your enemy operates? It makes actually 100% sense. So I started reading this book. I didn't agree with anything. He shared his skepticism with Aria. So I told her, I've got all these questions, and she told me she'll take me to the person who wrote this book. And that's when I met Cecilia Stein for the first time, and Zach Valentine and Michaela. Luke challenged Cecilia's ideas in person, and strangely enough, she seemed to enjoy it, bantering back and forth with him, but not providing any real answers. Luke remained unconvinced that she was as cunning as she said she was, but was intrigued by the group's reverence for her. But then, only a couple of weeks after he came into Cecilia's orbit, people started dying. This one friend phoned me about a week later, and she told me, Natasha Berger, your friend's been murdered. In his gut, he knew they were to blame. I couldn't believe it. Something didn't make sense. And so, he decided to act. I went on my knees, and I prayed. And I told the Lord, he can use me. I will go into Kruger's door if you can just protect me and I'll open up this whole hornet's nest. Luke planned to conduct his own investigation. He would infiltrate Electus Perdaeus, posing as a devotee. He could get close to them and confirm his suspicions. Then, once he had hard evidence, he would go to the police. Luke tread lightly at first so that no one would suspect anything. He needed to earn Cecilia's trust. The rest would follow. Not aware of the malicious inner workings of EPD, Luke began to spend time with some of the members socially, Zach Valentine in particular. And up close, he took note of how Cecilia played them all. Everybody was extremely scared of Cecilia. And that's how she got everybody to listen to her and follow her instructions. She used fear and, of course, scripture. The story of King David, who was told by God to destroy the Philistines, worked especially well on Marinda. I remember she manipulated Marinda out of David. David killed all the people and the women and the children and the dogs. Everything must be killed. And that's how she manipulated Marinda to participate in the killings. Cecilia reinterpreted biblical teachings to her liking so that members believed that what they were doing was God's will. 
just like so many zealots throughout history who murdered in the name of God. Cecilia would speak on behalf of the Almighty, and who were they to argue against such divine authority? That made Michaela's unwillingness to kill Joy Burnside an affront to Cecilia and an act of existential defiance. Zack tried to reassure Cecilia that Michaela was loyal and that she could still be trusted, but Cecilia was unsparing. She berated Michaela for not following through on the kill assigned to her and decided all of them, Zack, Marinda, Marcel, LaRue, and Michaela, should all be better prepared for next time. In fact, they should practice. Luke wasn't yet deep enough into the fold to be included in this macabre exercise. The core members, however, arrived at Cecilia's flat one evening to find her in the bedroom. Laid out under stacks of newspaper was a boar's head from the local butcher. She handed knives to each of her followers and instructed them to have at it. A depraved rehearsal for killing a human. She watched for a while and then left the room, returning a few minutes later with an ax. While their blades were plunged deeper and deeper into the boar's head, Cecilia fed her followers stories of the conniving ways of Rhea and her mentor, Pastor Reginald Ben Dixon. He was the aggressor, she told them. He turned Rhea against them all. He led OTC toward praying incorrectly, thereby forcing them to dispose of Natasha. And he, according to Cecilia, had plagiarized her Know Your Enemy pamphlet and repurposed it for an OTC course. Finally, Cecilia's devotees, breathless and bloody, surrounded the mangled pig's head, ready for their next kill. This time, it would be Mirinda's turn to prove her loyalty. And this time, we'll hear about the murder in her own words. No one ever screamed. No one ever screamed when I killed them. They were dead within seconds. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always gonna have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to, where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation, so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, 
a second grade teacher, and written by my husband, Clark, an eternal second grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep Tight Stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Marinda Stein, guided by her undying loyalty to Cecilia, was outraged at Pastor Reginald Ben Dixon's inequities. He had stolen both Cecilia's intellectual property and Rhea's admiration. In her book, The Krugersdorp Cult Killings, journalist Yana Marks details a scene where Cecilia called an emergency meeting and informed them, quote, We have to take him out. This is war. We are living in the end times, and Reg has turned against God. What you're hearing now is a maximum security correctional facility south of Johannesburg. It's popularly known as Sun City, after a famous holiday resort in South Africa's northwest province. The inmates ironically chose this name, implying that any time spent there was the furthest thing from a holiday. It's akin to calling Rikers Island Disney World. When I entered the prison, I was frisked from head to toe. I boarded a rickety old bus that took us to the women's prison. Female, female. Next one, female. Okay, thank you. We slowed to a stop in front of a high razor wire fence that surrounded a large brick building. The sun was out. There was a bite in the wind. followed a stream of visitors off the bus and through layers of fencing. We were all frisked again and again. Each time I became more nervous. After what felt like an eternity, the guards checked me in. My name is Kurt. Kubitschek. Excitement and fear coursed through me. I was about to come face to face with the greatest evil I had ever known. Marinda Stein herself. This one to you. Marinda, take one. <laughs> like with the first murder, the group heavily scouted the location. Pastor Reginald Ben Dixon lives on a one-way street. His house has a long driveway, a security gate, and a surrounding cinder block wall. Michaela rents a car. LaRue replaces the license plate with a stolen one. And Zach, Marinda, and Marcel pile in and head to Reg's house. On the drive, 14-year-old Marcel becomes suddenly nauseous. She asks them to pull over. The murder squad decides that Marcel is too sick, and they all return to Krugersdorp. This was not a good look for Marcel, or Michaela for that matter. When Marcel got sick, it was Michaela who tended to her. Over the past few years, Marcel and Michaela had bonded, while Marinda focused squarely on her duty to Cecilia, 
Michaela became Marcel's sole ally and confidant. Marcel looked up to her. Both were relieved that their deadly assignment was aborted that night. It's Thursday, August 9th, 2012. Reginald Ben Dixon receives a call from Zach Valentine. Zach uses a fake name and says he's seeking a spiritual counselor. He flatters him and says Reg comes highly recommended. The two men make an appointment to meet the following Monday at a local coffee shop. Reg jots it down in his date book. On the day of the appointment, the 13th of August, 2012, Zach, Marinda, and Marcel make their way to Ben Dixon's home. They call and ask for a rain check, assuming he would be at home for a while before making other plans. The scouting mission concluded that Ben Dixon's wife would be away until later that evening. About that same time, Rhea Grunewald gets a text on her phone from a number she doesn't recognize. Have you said your goodbyes to Reg? I hope you did. Rhea immediately forwards the message to the police officer she's been in contact with, the same cop who was a no-show at the coffee shop sting operation. Not surprisingly, he doesn't respond. Rhea tries calling. And yet again, the police aren't there for her when she needs them the most. Meanwhile, the novice assassins were nearing Reg's house. Michaela was ordered to stay home for this mission. She'd stay by Cecilia's side while the others followed orders. Cecilia no longer trusted Michaela to get the job done. Marcel, on the other hand, was not given an option. Marinda made sure her daughter was there to learn by example. Cecilia ordered Marcel to bring a video camera to record the killing. She wanted evidence of their devotion, and she wanted to see Reg Ben Dixon die. Interviewing Marinda for this podcast meant giving her a platform. The ethics of that concerned us quite a bit. But after months of poring over the facts of this case, we were missing a critical piece. What on earth motivated these seemingly normal people to become killers? I believe that talking to her might provide more insight into Cecilia's mindset and the group dynamics she cultivated. I wanted to figure out why Marinda and the rest of EPD did what they did and how they justified it in their own minds. In the visiting area, there were about 10 other inmates facing their loved ones. In an echoey and sterile room with a folding table that held handmade crafts for sale, crocheted pot holders and beaded jewelry all made by inmates. I walked past the tables and then heard a voice say, Kurt? Hello. Hi, how are you? There she was. The face I had seen peering back at me, frozen in mugshots and courtroom photographs. She smiled at me and thanked me for coming. We sat down on a long wooden picnic bench in the center of the room. I was now a foot away, face to face with Marinda Stein. She was as nervous as I was, and told me so. Honestly, I, I felt disarmed, mostly by her politeness, her seemingly normal demeanor. But that light soon dimmed, clouded by who I knew her to be. And that storm only grew as she started telling me what happened with Ben Dixon. Now, as you can tell, the audio quality of this interview is pretty rough, so we've asked an actor to read some of what Marinda shared with us so that you can clearly understand her chilling words. I knew the interaction would be tense and a bit awkward, 
but what I really didn't expect was how casually Marinda would talk about the act of taking someone's life, and so brutally. She was proud of what she'd done. I had a bad childhood. He looked exactly. I had a bad childhood. He looked exactly like my father. So um, he was such a trusting idiot. The kill team disguised themselves in police uniforms. Their weapons of choice: knives and an axe. Marinda described calling Reg from the front security gate using a burner phone. She claimed they were detectives from the South African Police Service who needed to speak with him about the recent murders and a possible connection to his friend, Ria Grunewald. Ben Dixon, of course, wanted to help with the investigation. So, he let the killers in. He was sort of um, a bit suspicious and then he started... He was sort of um, a bit suspicious and then he started talking to us and he opened the gate for us and we were walking out like a long driveway. Marinda came up with a ploy to con their way in. Then I said to him, well, why don't we go and speak inside the house? You know, because now the walls are high, but the neighbors would see. As the pastor and EPD walked up the front yard toward Ben Dixon's home, Marinda and Zach locked eyes. So we went just around the bend. We went just around the bend and he walked in front of us. And then Zach didn't even wait for me. He just started hitting him over the head, and he fell there in front of us. So we were never even in his house. Zach got impatient and hit Ben Dixon over the head with the back of the axe. They didn't even make it into his home. Then, Marinda joined in, stabbing him with her fishing knife. Marcel, 14 years old, watches in muted horror as this gruesome reality unfolds before her. Sitting there in her prison jumpsuit, Marinda twisted this into some distorted form of grace. Personally, I believe in killing a person quickly. I believe in killing a person quickly. No one ever screamed when I killed them. They were dead within seconds. Here's Christelle Boysen recalling Marinda's courtroom testimony. She was explaining that between her and Zach, while they were busy with Rex Benedictson stabbing him and slashing him, they actually got so excited that Zach accidentally hit her with the axe and she was telling him, hey, just, you know, stay clear. She was explaining this in court. Even when it was obvious that Reg was dead, Marinda continued to stab him. Her depravity was not only proof of her loyalty to God and to Cecilia, but the result of some research. She says she one time remember watching a documentary or something, and they say that if you want to know if someone is dead, you must look at this space on the throat. And if the space stops throbbing, then you know that the heart stopped pumping. And she was stabbing Rex Benedictson and waiting for this not to throb anymore, and then she would know that he's dead. With their work done, they leave Reg's lifeless body on the grass in the front yard, locking the security gate on their way out. When they pull up at Kasana Flats, Michaela is outside sitting in her car. Zach, still hyped on adrenaline from his second murder, boasts to his wife about what they'd done. Marinda and Marcel follow behind, corroborating Zach's account of their kill, like a hunting party celebrating their conquest. Michaela. Numb with shock, 
and careful not to show any indication of fear or disapproval, forced a crooked smile. Inside, though, she trembled, terrified at what her husband had become, a monster of his own making. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Cowie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At this point, I think it'll be helpful to sort out all the police and detectives involved in the investigation of these murders. It can get confusing since the police treated the first couple of crimes as unrelated. The car and church bombings, Reg's murder, and the killing of Natasha and Joy. So what became known as the Krugersdorp killings were investigated in stages. It's hard to pinpoint the exact chain of events and police involvement at each stage. Many statements from the cops make it sound as if they were there the whole time, even if they were not. Everyone we spoke to seems to have an opinion about how it all went down. So here we go. From what we can gather, Captain Van Vick was aware of the cases surrounding the car and church bombings and may have even been briefed on them. But when we spoke to him, Van Vick told us that he wasn't officially assigned as a lead investigator until after Pastor Reginald Van Dixon turned up dead. So it happened on the 13th of August that um, I was called to a scene where a person was deceased, and that is actually how I became involved in this case. Then there's his associate, Colonel Henny DeJager, a career cop with a brooding Tony Soprano-type presence. Colonel DeJager had been part of the investigation team since the car bombing incidents, assisting, we think. It's 
not totally clear when exactly de Jager became part of this investigation, but he's a major player and would soon become a pebble in the shoe of the detectives seeking truth and justice. Many of the facts surrounding both de Jager and Van Vick's involvement in the Cecilia Stein case remain opaque. Then there's Detective Suzette Kenotze, graceful and bold. She is called in a bit later, followed by the brazen Detective Ben Boysen and a team of seasoned investigators. Both Detective Suzette Kenotze and Ben Boysen each had to re-examine a string of suspicious events and reconsider the evidence from every angle, essentially rebuild the case and track where and how it all began. The other two law enforcement officials are Colonel Kobus Yonker, Suzette's mentor, who started the occult-related crimes unit, and Colonel Christelle Boysen, a well-respected officer in the South African Police Service. She remains the acting operational overhead commander for the West Rand District. She's also married to Ben, and they often help each other out with cases. So, here we are, August 13th, 2012. Pastor Reginald Bendixson's body lies on the grass. It's a horrifying scene. Detective Suzette Kenotze recalls the crime scene photos. He was hacked from behind. When he turned around, he was hacked from the front. The pastor had axe wounds to the back of his head and had been stabbed more than 10 times on his chest and torso. Here's Captain Johan van Vick. On, on the scene, uh, it was one of the most gruesome murders which I've seen in my, my then 34 years in the South African Police Service. Standing there in Ben Dixon's front yard, Captain van Vick supposedly met Colonel de Jager for the first time. There was another policeman that arrived on the scene, Colonel de Jager. He said that he was from the occult unit of the police service. I've never met him before. He then informed me that uh, the murder had some sort of occultic connection. Here is where the window of truth begins to blur, though. According to Jana Marks, who was present at all of the court proceedings, both de Jager and Van Vick had been at least adjacent to the car bomb investigations. Colonel de Jager may have even been assisting on them. So it's very likely they would have met before. The other strange thing is that Colonel de Jager was brought on as a consultant to assess the potential for ritual murder in the case of Natasha Berger and Joy Burnside, even though their murders were technically outside of his jurisdiction. He was reportedly an expert on the occult. De Jager has bravado. He commands any room he finds himself in, any crime scene, too. His arrival on the scene of Ben Dixon's murder was kind of like what we've seen in movies, when the FBI shows up and takes over. But in South Africa, the case remains in the hands of the lead investigating officer, which is now Ben Vick. De Jager was confident that Ben Dixon's murder was a ritualistic slaying, the work of a satanic cult and likely related to the previous killing of Joy and Natasha. Detectives Suzette Kenotze and Ben Boysen, on the other hand, both believe that an under-resourced police department, coupled with the nationwide fear of the occult, often resulted in a rush to judgment. And that dynamic resulted in poor police work, especially when a crime aligns so neatly with the biases born of their imagined fears. 
the two investigating officers working on the case concentrated more on the Satanism side and they totally lost focus on the actual murders that needs to be investigated, which actually, yes, it was part of the, the story, but it, that wasn't why the murders took place. De Yager argued that there should have been more blood on the scene, given the brutality of Ben Dixon's wounds. He was saying, no, there was a lot of blood and the blood just went missing. Where's all the blood? De Yager told his team that whoever committed this murder must have consumed the blood, a clear mark of ceremony. So then he said, no, 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 somebody must have drank it. The police worked earnestly with the Yager's theory that this was the grisly act of Satan-worshipping blood drinkers. However, Detective Suzette thought it was obvious where the blood had gone. Now, that person is laying on the grass. So it went into the grass, absorbed by the grass. That is where it went. Nobody drank it. In other words, all the Satanism stuff was nothing more than a powerful distraction. You have to follow facts. The facts was right in front of them, but their attention was drawn to sensation, dragging their attention in the sensational route, and you can't investigate like that. Ben Boysen, also looking at this retroactively, agrees that this was a huge mistake. And that's why the 2012 murders were never solved. They were investigating Satanism. Satanism is not a crime. You investigate the crime, So clearly, the police started off on the wrong track. In fact, they began to suspect that it was actually Rhea who was behind it all. I I regarded uh, Rhea Grunewald as also a person that just was legitimate and she just just wanted to help the people and assist the people. But because all of these uh, things had escalated at a later stage, uh, I also became suspicious of her. According to Reginald Ben Dixon's phone records, Rhea had an appointment with him on the day he was murdered. When the police confronted her about this, she said it must be the Satanists impersonating her. And that's when she decided to find a lawyer. Because of this scheduled meeting and the fact that she was connected to both Reginald Ben Dixon and Natasha Berger, Rhea now officially became the primary suspect. They reached out to Rhea's old mentor, F.H. Havinga, for comment. Havinga mentions a Colonel X here. He means Colonel de Yager. I got... A colonel from the SAPS contacting me who said, listen, I need to speak to you. There's been murders. It's occult related. It's in Krugersdorp area connected to overcomers in Christ. And I say, whoa, whoa, overcomers in Christ? Yes, Ria Grunewald. And, you know, it was that moment. It was that shock. It was that disbelief. No, this can't be. When we spoke to him, there was still an open investigation into police misconduct. Thus, our use of Colonel X. More on that post-mortem investigation in a later episode. At this moment in time, Havinga knew right away that the police must be barking up the wrong tree. They were ignoring the facts that were staring them in the face, preferring to focus on the illusions from a now antiquated satanic panic. I said, to Colonel X, said, Colonel X, your suspect is Cecilia Stein. Please follow her, check her. That's your main suspect. But the Yager wasn't convinced of Rhea's innocence until it became clear as day. 
Rhea's new lawyer told her to document her whereabouts every day so that moving forward, she could always prove her innocence. But right after Ben Dixon's murder, the police confiscated Rhea's cell phones, hard drives, and laptop, disconnecting Rhea from the world. Our big breakthrough came when, uh, on the morning of Pastor Ben Dixon's funeral, Rhea woke up on the morning of Pastor Reginald Ben Dixon's funeral. She stepped out onto her porch and felt the sun on her face. She looked down and found a parcel waiting at her feet. Rhea phoned me and she said that she found a package in front of her door. The package was wrapped. It was some sort of a meat. Rhea unfolded the damp newspaper. Inside was a large chunk of bloody meat. Pinned to it was another note. A letter uh, written in block words. Look what the dog is left you of rich or something to, to that effect. The note read, look what the dogs have left you of your precious pastor. The detectives now had to let go of their pet theories that either Satanists or Rhea were to blame for the murders. Now they were forced to consider the case with fresh eyes. On top of that, the haphazard criminals from EPD had fumbled again. Fingerprints was found on the, the letter that wrapped this piece of meat. Once again, police found fingerprints. I took their fingerprints, and the fingerprints indeed belonged to Maranda Stein. Then Vic took the opportunity to bring in everyone he could from EPD. The police had all of them in custody, even Cecilia. But despite all the evidence and the possible motives pointing to Marinda and Cecilia as the culprits, both were released from police custody. In fact, all the members of EPD were let off the hook. Before we go, there is one other police officer you should know about. He didn't work on this case, at least not in the way the others did. But he is the reason Ben Dixon's attackers wore police uniforms. The reason Cecilia was never worried about them getting caught. She was extremely confident that nothing will happen to them. She was constantly telling them, don't worry, we know the cops, they will do nothing, don't worry about it. This other officer? His name was Dries Stein, and he was Cecilia's husband. Even Cecilia's husband's in the police. So who do you trust? On the next episode of Queen Havoc... She came to realize God will never ask you to murder anybody. So this was the house where they used to stay. She liked to provoke the soccer against it. When she said she's going to the police, then the next morning she ended up dead. The bedding, the headboard, the wall and the roof was full of blood. Queen Havoc and Her Murder Cult is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcasts. Queen Havoc is hosted and created by me, Kurt Kubitschek. Produced and written by Jennifer Takini, Julia Kriskow, and Kurt Kubitschek. Lead producer is Julia Kriskow. Story editor is Zarin Burnett. Senior producer is Amelia Brock. Production manager is Daisy Church. Original music composed by Claire Campbell. Editing, sound design, and scoring by Jesse Neiswanger. Associate producers are Dashin Moodley and Jermaine Kriher. Additional producing by Ben Melman. Fact-checking by Dennis Webster. 
Recording engineers are Graham Gibson, Clay Hillenberg, and Josh Hook. Brenda Stein was read by Angelique Pretorius. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, L.C. Crowley, Brandon Barr, Jennifer Takini, and Kurt Kubicek. We want to thank all of those who so generously welcomed us in South Africa and shared their stories. We're incredibly grateful to you all. We also want to acknowledge how traumatic these events are for the victims and their families. Please respect their privacy. If you or someone you know has been affected by cult behaviors, there are resources available, including Voices for Dignity at ChristineMurray.com. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.